When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This new energy was coming into the punk scene, and GIs was at that point kind of an old school band. Mm-hmm. And and in that band, if the bass player left, like tough break, we're going to get somebody else. Like this band is is not going to stop because one person can't hack it. So they had like eight bass players or something, and it was a little bit of a like. I think people were kind of smirky about it, and I was when I when I answered the. When I called the number, I was like, wouldn't that be funny if I was the ninth bass player of government issue, you know? (laughs) Hello and welcome to... Oh my God, the Adulting Whale Podcast. I am your host, Pepper, joined as always by Kevin. Kevin, how are you? Who are we with today? Well, first of all, we're with Jay Robbins, which I am uh, really grateful that you could join the show this morning. And um, I'm a little bit frenzied because my my daughter didn't tell me she had orchestra this morning, so I had to run a harp over to her school. Oh, um, wow. So I'm, my, my energy is a little higher. Than is a harp as big as I, I'm imagining? She plays a traditional pedal like irish harp so it's huge yes wow, wow. um yeah, so cool anyway yeah how'd she yeah. how'd she pick the harp i don't know i honestly don't know i you know but i will say in kevin doesn't honesty, know his kids very well <laughs> <laughs> that is not true but um she she just that's just what she landed on i mean she's a ballet dancer too so i guess it kind of goes together but um one of my proudest moments which is also a little nerdy is she I went to pick her up at her mom's house and she said, hold on, dad. And she pulled her harp out and played Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven for me. <laughs> yeah. At like eight years old. So, you know, I mean, it's, it wasn't in a guitar s- store, but it was, a, you know, it was still. It was still <laughs> Were you like, did you sit her down like, don't ever play that in a <laughs> no, guitar store? I didn't want to crush her. Anyway, so, so take, let's get to Take your harp to the guitar center <laughs> yeah. and set up shop. Let's get place. to Jay. Yeah, I, yeah. you know, we're, well, I'll do a full intro before pre pre show on you because there's a lot to cover. But um, Jay, you, you know, you're you're well known as the primary songwriter and kind of band leader for Jawbox, and um, you know, a band that's that's had a couple of eras, and along with producing some really great records over the years, and almost too long to list really essentially and um but you started off music playing in the local dc scene um it looks like and um one of and quite honestly for one of my all-time favorite bands government issue and um just such a dynamic ever-changing you know was uh, that your first band that well not not exactly but it was my first band that sort of uh, accomplished anything Right. I was um, I was in a band briefly, um, this kind of teenage thrash band called Punchline that uh, my friend Derek had played bass in. When he went to college, he was like, "You should take my spot," because he knew that I was just dying to play in a band. But well, how, when did you even start 
getting into that kind of stuff? Like, how old were you when you you became aware of like I want to go play in punk bands? I want to be part of this or thrash. Or um, probably eighteen. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I came to it a little bit later than yeah. than most people seem to because um, uh, I'm trying to tell the most condensed version of my life story. But tell the long, <laughs> but, uh, tell, tell the long version. You can tell but, the long version. No, no, my God, no. <laughs> uh, but um, but basically, before like when I was a kid, what I was the music I really loved was not rock and roll or or pop music by and large. It was like mostly movie soundtracks i was a super into film all kinds of when you say movie soundtrack are you talking about like john williams or are you talking about yeah i'm largely like i'm talking about like bernard herman jerry goldsmith john williams those are my big three john Mm -hmm. barry um but you know also uh john carpenter like when i found out because i was such a movie nerd Okay. I remember finding out that John Carpenter not only, you know, directed Halloween, but he wrote that incredible music. And I was yeah. like, oh, of course, score your own film. That's great. But so I, I always kind of imagined that I would do something like that. Were you, you already know, playing music but, then, I, I assume? Well, but not not in any kind of way. Like, I basically didn't really escape my house. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. I, like, I was kind of a, a pretty, like, sort of inward, like, awkward um uh, I think my dog is trying to tell me she needs to go out. I'm gonna you want to take a quick break? I'm, I might have to. Yeah, do you mind? Totally fine. No, She's, she kind of calls the tune here. Yeah, so, we'll take uh, a quick break, on. folks, and we'll be right back. What was it? Oh, yeah. So um, I remember noticing music in movies and noticing that it was really you know going to work on me like it was such a large part of like drawing you into a movie and like you, you notice the emotional part yeah. of it oh interesting yeah yeah I, I, i'm not like i noticed like you know i remember seeing star wars and being like super into the music yeah but then also kind of it, it kind of clicking for me that like you know, a certain thing would happen musically and it was heightened the experience, you know, or like the shower scene from Psycho or, or mm-hmm. actually Psycho in general, right? Like mm-hmm. I was, I'm always like, if you take the music out of Psycho, the first hour is just Janet Lee driving around looking nervous. Like it's not, yeah, you know, yeah. but you put the music in and it's like, oh shit, you know? Um, so, um, so I remember noticing that and then starting to listen to music from films and kind of, um, I never had formal lessons on the piano, but we had a piano in the house. So I would just sit down and like nerd out with headphones and try to learn, um, just basically try and learn, you know, I'd hear certain things harmonically that just really, I thought mm-hmm. were amazing. And so I'd try to learn what that was, you mm-hmm. know? And, um, that's so interesting that was... to me because I feel like it took me a long time as a musician to think about, to really think about the emotion and mood of something mm-hmm. uh, other than it just coming out from being loud and being punk and all this stuff and it feels like you right. connected with that really early that you can make something tense if you do something right or like right i'm like oh luke skywalker just won the battle listen he sounds so triumphant oh but yeah, the yeah. next scene he sounds kind of sad why is that oh well there's a there's yeah. a voice in the middle of the orchestra that's sort of making it sort of sour and dark sounding like what right. is that and i would go try and find that sound or whatever like um but I mean, and maybe I always connected to like, like the narrative quality of, of music uh-huh. a little bit. Because uh-huh. when I was little, I mean, my my dad had like 
a couple Black Sabbath records and I liked those and I liked certain things, but I liked it if it was tied to a story. Like the mm -hmm. reason I liked Black Sabbath is because they had a song called Iron Man, you know, and I'm like, we're talking like really little, right? And I'm listening yeah. to it going like, well, this doesn't sound like the superhero. I mean, this, <laughs> this Iron Man seems kind of mean and vindictive. What's that all about? You know, but it's, I was into it, you know, but anyway, so it was basically a sort of doing this movie soundtrack exploration in my head and I was making little super eight movies and stuff, but it wasn't, and I, um, I didn't have a real clear sense of where I was trying to go with any of this. I just knew it was, mm -hmm. I was like engaged in the, you know, I was making a little, a little mental utopia basically with music and art and stuff. And I was, and you could lose time. yourself in that for hours and hours. And hours. Yeah. And that's, that was basically the end of it. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. And, and, uh, and, you know, when I got into high school, um, I got into this art magnet program, um, which was at my high school and all these other kids from all around the county came and you got to do art for half the day. You know, you had to do a portfolio submission and then you get into this thing and it's like, it was really wonderful. So I connected with these other kids in that class, basically over things like science fiction and monster movies and HR Giger and whatever else, like stuff that we had in common. Yeah. You know, but it wasn't the music per se, but um, but it was that kind of like creativity and like sort of otherness and like um, eclectic uh, eclectic taste and being super into like a thing. Yeah, no, totally, and and being like and being an outsider, you know, sure. being and that like this is a group that was like self-identified outsiders. Like it's better to be an outsider. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and so you found the weirdos. Yeah, basically, exactly. Short, short version. I found the weirdos, and then I started going to shows with them, and I was like, because my whole life, I was up to that point, I was like, you know, I'm never going to learn the rules. Yeah. Like, yeah, I just yeah, don't yeah. understand how to like work in the world, and uh, I'm never. And then I went. I found this group that was like rules. You know, <laughs> like sure. we're going to make some up right now. What do you think? And then we'll throw them out. You know. So, um, so it was just really energizing. So then I, that's got me into the punk rock scene. And yeah. then I thought like, rather than, you know, building these kind of castles in my mind of, of music, like writing a symphony in my head that I'm never going to finish or like, you know, can barely like write music or whatever. If I learned to play the bass, I could be in a band. And next thing you know, I'd be playing, there'd be other people and there's a whole culture yeah. or a whole, you know, yeah. so that, that was what drew me to it but it was weird because it's like i got there backward yeah i got there i got there through sort of th through the punk door and then kind of went back and and started appreciating yeah. pop music and rock and roll and stuff so and it is a couple years later than we usually hear in these these interviews um which is interesting to me yeah no definitely i think i was probably 18 well i went to the first show i went to was uh, I would have been 17 because it was in 1984. It was like maybe two weeks or three weeks after Minor Threat broke up. I went and saw Government Issue and mm. Marginal Man at uh, Wilson Center. So were you in, is that where you were, the D.C. area? Yeah, I was in Silver Spring, which is yeah. uh, Maryland, you know, but <clears throat> just, just outside D.C. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty familiar. I've been to D.C. quite a few times. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of an interesting um, intro to your first show is going to a local show in D.C. where the, the uh, it's seemingly, at least from what I've seen from the documentation, it was a pretty tight scene as far as everyone kind of knew each other and 
a lot of bands shared members across, you know, multiple bands over multiple years and be, everyone was rehearsing in specific people's basements, depending on what groups they were in. Right. Right. Um, I mean, how was that as sort of an intro to, to, to the scene? Well, I mean, I think DC always had a, the DC music scene always had a rep for being somewhat cliquish. Mm-hmm. And because I came from the, well, one thing that was cool about trying out for when I, when I ultimately got into GIs, um, it was after I had gone to NYU for film school for one semester and kind of blew all my money and really enjoyed living in New York for a semester. But I didn't, I had also realized that like NYU film school is no joke. Like it's full of people who really know what they're trying to accomplish, yeah, you know, right. by and large. Right. And I, I kind of didn't. So I came home and I was kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And I just saw this flyer um, in the punk rock record store. that was like a handwritten flyer with a Sharpie that said government issue needs a bass player um, and little tabs, you know, with the phone number you could pull off and, yeah. and call. And I was like, I barely knew how to play bass and I barely had any gear. And I was like, and it was a weird moment in, you know, having, being really immersed as a show goer, as a fan in the music scene, you know, I had this concept about, you know, bands didn't stay together long. They didn't, if you lose a member, the band is over, you know, <laughs> like, and it was that kind of revolution summer thing where this new energy was coming into the punk scene and GIs was at that point kind of an old school band. Mm-hmm. And, and in that band, if the bass player left, like tough break, we're going to get somebody else. Like this band is, is not going to stop because one person can't hack it. So they had like eight bass players or something. And it was a little bit of a, like, I think people were kind of smirky about it. And I was, when I, when I answered the, when I called the number, I was like, wouldn't that be funny if I was the ninth bass player of government issue, you know, <laughs> but then I got in and what, but the point that I come to this is that like, when I found out where their practice space was, it was actually in Rockville, like 10 minutes from my house. So oh, it nice. wasn't like deep in the bowels of Washington, DC in some secret enclave. It was like in Aspen Hill where we used to go get groceries, you know, like it was like <laughs> right around the, right around the corner in a neighborhood, just like mine. Did you record house, with them? You know, then yeah, we did. Too. Well, after about a, I'm really bad with timelines, unfortunately. But but um, but we did. I, I did. I made two full length records with Government Issue, um, which were the last two full lengths that they. Is that your first time did. in a studio recording with a band? Yeah. Is yeah. that when and you? Was, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I was just wondering if that's when you started kind of getting your um, your craft together. As no, no, no. Producing. I mean, I had no, I was, you know, I was a little kid. Yeah, yeah. GI, like, you know, I was the, the baby member. So yeah. I, w- I just kind of showed up and played. And then, you know, my eyes were like saucers. I'm just looking around. <laughs> and it was a really cool studio. It was a yeah. place called, called Lion and Fox that um, is not there anymore. But Were you I interested thought, in the process? I, I was. I had, didn't have a clue about it, but I was mm-hmm. interested in it. So I was sort of trying to kind of, you know, be on the, I was on the periphery trying to sort of soak up as much of what was going on as I could, you know, but I didn't really learn anything in a hands-on way until, um, until Jawbox. Mm. So on that note, I, it must've all been, um, recorded, um, on tape, right? At that point. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you're in the studio with GI who, Mm -hmm. I mean, and John was like, even at that time, 
like sort of an epic front man. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. John, John was a character. I mean, he kind of was like for the, and it's, it's interesting because they're, they're one of those bands that, <clears throat> you know, strangely, I think a lot of people in the scene kind of, you know, missed all because the, their, their records were, were so different over the years. Like as you got into their later career and the songwriting changed a bit and, like one of my best friends is just a massive GI fan. I mean, this guy just loves every record for different reasons. And well, when I go to his house, he'll like put it on a record on and talk about every track, you know? And, um, but I just like, what a, what an amazing introduction to, to playing live and really being a part of a a band. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, it was incredible for me. I mean, I, I was super, I mean, I was super psyched about it. I was, I was so intimidated about playing live that I didn't. I mean, I remember playing the first show I played with GIs was in Pittsburgh at the Electric Banana, mm-hmm. and um, and I didn't open my eyes the whole. I was oh, just, wow. I was on stage just like freaking out, and I <laughs> I just couldn't open my eyes. The whole time. <coughs> That's so amazing. I was I was not made to, you know, at that time I I wasn't uh, a natural. Yeah. On you you, you mentioned briefly, um, or, you know, your dad's one of your dad's records. What, what did you grow up in a musical household? I mean, were your parents like, no, no, no. I mean, I remember my musical memories from, I mean, my mom, I think was, um, had had some kind of musical life, um, before she was a suburban mom, but she didn't really talk about it. My mom was a, a pretty troubled individual. So, she was, um, so she, I know that, you know, a certain, like, she had a certain musicality that was really important to her, but it's like, by the time she was, uh, you know, um, a homemaker, mm-hmm. it's almost like she wasn't allowed to really get into yeah. that, but she would yeah. talk about it a little bit. And then I remember, um, my dad like late at night with the like Lennon McCartney songbook, like trying to learn to play guitar. Oh, you know, fine. Like when everyone else is supposed to be in bed, I'd be like, Oh, there he goes again. You know? So that's cool. Yeah. That's fun. That is, that's a really fun anecdote. So what, so you're in GI, what, what, what then starts happening? Cause you, you, at, at some point you branch off and start creating your own bands. Well, yeah, I mean, I was in GIs for about three and a half years, maybe. Oh, wow. And um, when GI broke up, I, I I played bass in Scream for a couple of months, which was super, super fun. So you played in Scream, and then what was coming Yeah, I, I, I played in Scream for about two months, uh, which was super fun, but I think I was not a good fit with them um, personality-wise, even though it was pretty you know it was it was copacetic it was really really fun experiences like the polar opposite of being in gis because gis were very tightly organized um because we kind of had to be because john was such a wild card Mm -hmm. so the other three of us were very like you know it was like we held we're holding this thing together like (laughs) industrial strength you know whereas scream was a whole lot looser and much more spontaneous and Mm -hmm. um i really you know that it was enjoyable in the exact opposite way. <laughs> right. Um, but at that point I was like, you know, am I just going to be this young dude who keeps joining old, kind of old, older dudes bands, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I had been thinking the whole time in GIs when I was trying to write, I wrote a lot of stuff on bass for GIs and then the band would sort of transform it into 
you know, full song arrangements. And sometimes I was, it was hard for me to like make my ideas clear. And I thought I should just play guitar. That seems to be a better way to sort of show songs. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to sing. And so basically, you know, at at that point, uh, Kim Coletta and I were dating and she was real hungry to start a band, super motivated, um, you know, and highly competent individual. Um, and, uh, really, really wanted to do it. And I was like, yeah, we should do this. This is what all my favorite bands did. They were like, start a band with your friends, you know, don't, Mm -hmm. don't sort of try to join the scene that's already in progress. Like you start your own scene and, you know, so it's me and Kim and who can play drums. And Adam was somebody that I had known for a long time. We had, we were not tight, but we had a lot of friends in common and I knew he was a good drummer. So I, I asked him and, you know, Nice. That that was the that was that was the beginning of Jawbox. That's interesting. I mean, we interviewed Kim as well, and I would agree on all fronts. Like, extremely competent, a total go getter. Like, yeah. you know, just no, and just really genuine, sincere person. You know, which is yeah, also... she, yeah, she was she was psyched. You know, yeah. <laughs> which is important. Which was really, I mean, it's important. We had really good kind of complementary energy because um, I was you know, still the same person, like motivated, but in this real inward way, just wanting to right. like make music all the time. So it's like, you know, Kim was the person who was like, right, we're getting out here into the world where people actually will hear this music, <laughs> you know, someone, even if it's only like five people, you know? Yeah. So what, what, I mean, it sounds to me like you converted in many ways so you could write your own stuff and like deliver that creative side of yourself. What, yeah. what, what kind of is the, or was at that point, I guess, because I, I know the band has changed a bit since the original three of you, but what, what was kind of the songwriting process for you? I mean, a lot of, a lot of it was just like, you know, it's like, I sort of, okay, I wanted to start my own band and I'm like, okay, you got your wish. Uh, let's put some songs together, yeah. you know? So some of it was just like, a lot of early Jawbox was, I mean, some of it was, was, you know, Kim would have an idea for a bass part, mm-hmm. but not, maybe not like a big picture arrangement of a song per se. Um, so we would kind of work out those things together or, um, you know, and same for me, like I might have an idea of what the general shape of a song was with some parts, but then we just kind of jam it out and, and finish it. And uh, Kim wrote a fair bit of the lyrics as well at that point and so i mean it's just you know typical young band stuff of like Mm -hmm. you know you know what you're into for that like five minutes and then maybe you sort of emulate it and you get it wrong so it sounds different enough that it's your song you know (laughs) Um, was um was so you know you were saying you'd write songs on bass and you're like i'm having trouble like getting that across to people what the song actually is with just bass. Yeah. So you learn guitar and it's a little bigger. And now it's a little more complete. Is yeah. the step to producing just that extended? Like now it's not quite right on the record. I need to learn how to produce it to make it sound like it does in my head. Maybe that's probably, that's pretty interesting. It probably is, but it probably, it would have been a really slow arc for yeah. me, you know, like yeah. it, it's, I mean, I do kind of remember that. I remember the first time I tried to help out a friend's band in the studio. I I knew zero, like I knew mm-hmm. nothing technical, but um, but I had been in the studio a lot with GIs, and I went, and, and so I was like, I really liked the drum sound on this Marginal Man record. Mm-hmm. Um, 
double image. So I was like, well, you guys should go record where Marginal Man recorded, you know? And, um, but you know, I, I had, I did not understand at that time right. how, how much the sound of the record, you know, if you do it right, it's the sound of the band. Right. Yeah. So the reason the drums sound good on the Marginal Man record, you know, not to diminish the work of the engineer or the quality of the studio, which are yeah. both great, but like, it sounds good because Marginal Man was great and right. the drummer was great. And like, you know, so, um, but the craft of it, I guess I'm asking about, I really want to get into the producing stuff because so like for me personally, over the last couple of years, three, two, three years, several times I've taken recording stuff out to a place I rented for a few days and been mm -hmm. like, I'm going to, I have four or five acoustic songs, you know, two acoustic tracks, two vocals, and I'm going to come back with Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. Like that's right. what it's going to sound like twice. I've <laughs> yeah. done this same songs uh -huh. twice. I've come back with something that does not sound like Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. Yeah. And, and Why, one thing you sung, it, you sung it on key. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And then, <laughs> but one thing about it is uh, that I noticed is it took me two years to figure out how to record acoustic guitar. It would be booming and this, and the mm. bass would be. So just yeah. to do that, and now I'm like, okay, I can record the acoustic guitar. That does sound like, it sounds like I want it to sound now when I hear it right. you know, on all speakers. Uh, so for you to be, like I consider you to be, you're my favorite producer. So, oh, wow. How, so that must you. have started at wow. some point. And at some point you must have, that became your craft, right? And I kind of want to figure out like, or it's yeah, one of was, your crafts. Well, you know, what, what happened was like I was... I was interested, you know, I got into it mostly in a more abstract way, like from listening to records. And that was true, whether it was like symphony records or like XTC, who's a band that I really, really love where oh, it's yeah. like incredible, like deep production value. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of intertwined with the songs. So, One of the know, first CDs I ever heard too, XTC. Oh, uh, which XTC, which record? Uh, the Dear God one. Oh, cool. Yeah, that record's amazing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's for me, it was Black Sea. And that's like, that yeah. record's like a super touchstone. Yep. And it's like, you know, the production's deep. And you can choose to think about it or not because it's part of the way that the song is drawing you into its little world or whatever. But so, so those were the things that interested me, like more musical, more musical things and less technical things. And then I was just fortunate that I got to you know, this is like <clears throat> long, much later in the, you know, history of kind of mm -hmm. Jawbox has worked real hard. We put out a bunch of records. And then um, after we did For Your Own Special Sweetheart, um, a couple of bands in a row asked me to sort of go in and help, you know, just kind of like be, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like spotting them on the high wire, right, in the yeah. studio, just being able to say like, you know, well, you know the songs and, you know, just let us know when we're not in tune or if we're right. speeding up or if something stupid like that. And then, and then, um, which was super fun. And then I was able to sort of make some musical contributions. And so that sort of started, you know, if like Texas is the reason a lot of it was like vocal coaching and like harmony, yeah. you know, being, proposing harmonies and, and arrangement type things. And then, I did a few of those and I started to feel like, uh, okay, this is really great, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm typically really down on myself. <laughs> so sure. I would just be like, I'd be like, um, 
yeah, but you're really just another guy with an opinion in the room. Like you don't actually know. And I was, it just ate at me, you know, I'd be like, and I, so I would, I was mm-hmm. along the way, I'm asking engineers like, well, why do you like that microphone for mm-hmm. this? Why do you, mm-hmm. you know, why would you place that there? What's, you know, those kinds of things. So I had a, I had a glancing, I had some knowledge of it, but I didn't really have practical knowledge. And I was just like, enough, I got to get my hands dirty with this, you know? And that's when, that's when I start, you know, I mean, I was paying attention along the way, but it is like you're saying when, like miking an acoustic guitar is a perfect example because everybody wants to put the mic right in front of the sound hole. And then it's like, terrible. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the first thing anyone thinks. And, and it's interesting how much, um, you need to listen. Like, like yes, the, yes. The number one thing is yes. just like put the microphone here, but then listen to yes. what it is getting. But why does it take and, so long to like understand that? I don't get, I don't know. But it's also because there's so many steps, you're so many steps removed from, you know, like if it's just mm-hmm. you in a room with an yeah. instrument. Yeah. I, and I love this too, like the way that your brain is such a filter. It's such a, it's such an incredibly efficient filter so you could be in a really noisy, crappy sounding, terrible environment, mm. but someone is doing something compelling mm-hmm. and your, your brain takes whatever's coming in from your ears and just focuses it. And you're like, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And you forget that there's an idling truck parked right, right outside the door right. and that, you know, there's a screaming kid or whatever, like, because you're like, mm-hmm. listen to that acoustic guitar. Right. But a microphone doesn't microphone gets everything you know what i mean yeah 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 it's all so so it's like and and a lot of it is just like it's trial and error you know and you don't when you start out i mean recording yourself it's kind of like tattoo artists you know like they're (laughs) right like but it's like you have to that's the best way to do a lot of stuff because you can give yourself that time yeah you know you might the only constraint then is just like your patience yeah 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 and, right. and, um, but you know, if you're recording other people, especially like back in the, you know, in the olden days when I started, like, you know, when it was like, like we have enough money for three days in the studio sure. and we have to do the whole record from setup to mix in yeah, three yeah. days, yeah. you, you really don't have the luxury of like going, oh, well, what happens if I put a second mic on the kick drum and mm-hmm. we just scoot it a little bit to the left mm-hmm. or whatever? But, you know, in aggregate, you get that sense, you know, you're like, you start to pay attention to things like the pickup patterns of microphones and, like, mm. you know, after several projects, several of these like kamikaze projects where you're like, why is there so much hi-hat in my damn snare mic? <laughs> and then you're like, oh, well, it's because, you know, you'd get less if you move the microphone a little way. So the null is aimed at the hi-hat and then... Maybe huh. ra- try and get the drummer to raise the hi-hat a little bit, or like maybe the drummer is actually not hitting the snare very hard. You know, all these things that you... That's the technical stuff. So use that aspect. And then there, I feel like there's a level of trust because even... So there's a couple of people asked you to come help them, right? And yeah. And you're able to go, ah, that vocal was whack. Or actually that vocal wasn't as whack as you think. You should keep it. Like you're you're able to kind of do that. And I imagine that that forms a... a like as as someone who sings and plays guitar and stuff, like a trust with you, like... Uh, it's well, very vulnerable always, position, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's also born of my experience as a singer in the studio. Mm-hmm. Like, 
you know, privately feeling like, Hey, I'm, I'm all right. I'm like, you know, like in my own time <laughs> singing along with records and stuff sure. and just enjoying it so much and feeling like, you know, oh, a big sound can come out of me or whatever. Like, yeah. okay, so that's my personal feeling. And yeah. then I get in front of a microphone in yeah. a studio and I'm like, eh, and I hear it yeah. in the control room and I'm flat like 95% of the time. And yeah. even worse, I have a band now that's in the control room that won't leave. And I'm out singing in the live room. It's the and worst. And they go, you're a little flat. And I'm like. They're all on the couch know. with headphones on or just listening to you sing. Right. No, or even worse, like leaning over the engineer's shoulder, all looking really intently, you know, <laughs> and you see them through the glass. And, and you like, have to be vulnerable. Like You have and, to be. And, and you're like, meanwhile, you're, you know, I'm like, yeah, I know I'm flat. I'm like dying out here. Like I'm just trying to make it happen. So I had that feeling, you know, yeah. like I was like, I was like, I, I'm. And then I also had the experience of engineers who were patient with me, who did sure. things like, hey, band members, maybe you can take a break now and just like let Jay get his thing together or whatever. Like, yeah, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I'm lucky I worked with some really amazing people who had the patience to help me kind of find my way. And I was like, you know, I took that to heart. I was just like, if I can do that for someone, that would be the best. I would, you know, that that's my ideal right and you have well that that's what i'm shooting for and like but i'm really lucky because then the first few experiences that i had in the studio as a producer right were with bands that you know i just had this incredible good fortune like they were fans of my band and so mm -hmm. they invited me to come along and so there was inherently some trust because they had a a connection to something that i had already already done and, you know, we knew each other well enough that they knew that I wasn't going to be on some kind of power trip or, you know, mm -hmm. I really just want to like help them make their best yeah. record, you know? So, um, so they, I'm just really lucky that the trust was already built in. And, right. and it's funny because over, over, there was like a phase where I was like, I got really comfortable in that role. And then I started working with some other bands that where like, you know, I would bring a conception of the record and and I'd have to put the brakes on a little bit because just very early in the process, I'd be like Farrakhet is one where I was like, oh, I can't wait to record Farrakhet. I'm so excited. I have all these ideas. And I kind of let myself forget that they had a lot of ideas because mm -hmm. they were super creative and very mm -hmm. studio. You know, they were real interested in the studio and they, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, yes. If I'm here to help, I'm going to help them in the way that they want me to help them. It's a super good lesson, you know. And it's obvious you don't put something through a machine. It's not like you've dialed everything in and I'll come in and record. Because if you look at, like, the Jets to Brazil albums, all three of them feel very different to me. They feel like uh, different kinds of albums to me. Well, that's also, I mean, that's due to the band. And mm -hmm. I mean, the Jets records, first Jets record, I did not engineer Stuart Sykes, the, mm -hmm. the house guy um, at Easley, who's an awesome engineer and a fucking excellent dude. He was the engineer on that record. So I was really like, you know, the fifth band member. Oh, like, yeah. You know, um, ish, you know, that was more like that role, like coach, mm -hmm. you know, hey, I hear a guitar part here like hey that's a cool idea do you want to play it you know whatever but like good job <laughs> yeah ex right ex exactly <clears throat> like no you guys nailed it you know whatever and then and then next record 
uh, I recorded, you know, engineered as well. Four Cornered Night. Yeah, that we did at Inner Ear, mm-hmm. and Jeff Sanoff mixed it. And it's then almost like a country one. album or something, though, to me. Yeah, but that's and that's like those things, you know. That's that's all down to the band, the stylistic yeah. changes and stuff. I think they were just like, you know, a, a, a restless. Yeah. They had restless uh, yeah. taste. Right. You know? And then the next one's <laughs> almost psychedelic to me. It's very interesting. Yeah, I love that record. I too. love that record. It's, the drumming on that record is superb. It's Chris. got, it's got, and it has this like, it's the psychedelic factor is like very, it's musically very close to my heart. Like, I, I think that record's awesome. Well, also, I mean, just going towards the drums here, because I'm a drummer as well, like the drummers you've gotten to work with, especially Zach, I mean, Zach is like otherworldly. You know, I, I, I don't even like watching him play is like I, I can't half the time. I can't even understand like where he came up with this stuff, let alone like does it with that level of energy every night. Um, It's kind of bonkers, really. Like it's he's I would concur. He's like <laughs> on a completely other planet. And, you know, I every time I take a drummer to see Jawbox and see him mm-hmm. play, I get that same reaction. Like what? the fuck <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's just really mind-blowing to watch is him. he the guy that we were talking about that starts he writes songs now by startings with drums and vocals yeah. and that's yeah. and we, we interviewed him he's, he's oh, next to him. yeah 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 so let, but i want to jump into that a little bit because <clears throat> you guys took a long time off um as a band and then you did that fallon thing and then nothing again for a while like yeah wh- what was the impetus to get back together and start playing again well uh i mean it it largely came from Zach. I mean, the the actual like motivation, the actual like yeah. okay. I mean, you know, getting it for, Jawbox changed significantly when Zach joined. Yep. Because, um, you know, Adam Adam is uh, a more conventional drummer, particularly in the sense that like, you know, you bring a song and he plays to the song, mm-hmm. and Zach is not really like that's not enough for Zach, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and it was, it was a real shot in the arm creatively because, um, you know, I wanted to hear more. I mean, I remember seeing him play when we played, um, one of our first out of town shows, he, he set up a show in Rochester, New York, where he lived Mm -hmm. and we saw his band Powerline. They opened and, I was like, whoa, yeah, whoa, a drummer, like, wow. And because he was so creative and I think that like, you know, so he, from the get-go when we started playing with him, it's like he would write beats and then whatever idea you had, you had to try and morph it to sort of work with his rhythmic. Wow, that's so backwards. You know, but I mean, it was really good. It's a good like, you know, musical consciousness (laughs) expanding exercise. Unless, you know, sometimes it's highly frustrating because if you write a song and you have a pretty clear conception of the whole thing in your head, which for better or worse, I, I tend to, I don't tend to write parts. Mm-hmm. I don't tend to write riffs. I tend to think of like the kernel of a song and then I want to feel the structure. And, and so, you know, that had to become a more collaborative process, mm-hmm. which was an interesting lesson for, mm-hmm. for Jawbox. Like, Everybody had to, you know, you'd bring your parts and sort of fit them around what Zach was doing. And then when we sort of got something going, 
you know, maybe then after a few parts coalesced, you know, usually it might be me that was like, okay, that is definitely the chorus. I can hear something that I'm going to sing to it. And we'd have the building blocks and maybe then I'd come back with lyrics and I go, really, this part needs to be longer mm -hmm. or, you know, so, but, um, uh, but yeah, so what was my point? I got kind of sidetracked there, but, but basically we, uh, we did the Fallon thing in 2009, 2010, whenever that was, that was, uh, around the, um, re-release of remastered for your own special sweetheart but we didn't think that we had the energy that we only did the fallon thing it was we weren't going to play at all because we thought we did none of us was in the in a position to learn a whole set and mm -hmm. be good at it and then we had the opportunity to play on fallon and we're like well, okay we can't learn a whole set but we can learn a small handful of songs and do justice to those and and that would be really fun mm -hmm. And we probably reach a lot more people in that kind of one shot than we would if we did a whole U.S. tour, you know. Mm -hmm. But then, um, you know, over time, I think the biggest impetus for doing the 2019 reunion was probably that we're all getting older. And and if we had a desire to do it, you know, there's a time limit mm -hmm. on how on our ability to physically pull it off, particularly for Zach. Because, like you said, he's such a heavy hitter, and it's such it demands so much of him physically. Mm -hmm. Because he doesn't, you, you know, as a like you know, just physically as a drummer, like he does not. Uh, it's either like one hundred and ten percent or nothing, right? And so it just wreaks havoc on his body. So it's so you know, the part of it was seeing that Jawbreaker had done it, honestly, mm -hmm. which was like a reunion that nobody expected to ever, ever, ever happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it seems like it's actually been really great for mm -hmm. them. And I'm talking on a personal level, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, and in Jawbox, Jawbox has a very fraught interpersonal history, like every, like anybody, right? When you're in your 20s and you're just, I mean, I kind of think now, the default for your twenties, whether anybody admits it or not, is like a, a large percent of it, percentage of it is kind of freaking out. You know? <laughs> yeah. You're just like nah, inside, yeah. like nah. yeah. and um so it's nice to it was nice to think, here's this thing, you know, and now I've had like emotional like ups and downs about it where like after the band broke up and I was like, you know, Burning Airlines, I formed with Bill, Bill played bass because it often was so difficult to write songs together on guitar mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it was like we were crowding the same space and it used to drive me i was just like i just found it very frustrating mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i was also like bill's also a super talented like amazing musician and we're on a wavelength about so many things if we each had our own different department right mm -hmm. if i'm playing guitar and he's playing bass we're not we're going to complement each other and that'll be really amazing to do mm -hmm. right and so every every steps in Strawbox, I've been, you know, however it sounds to anybody, because I think if anybody, first of all, I'm amazed that anybody cares, but like, <laughs> like for people who, for some people, I think they're just like, oh, it's another Jay thing. This just sounds like another thing that Jay did. But like, for me, I've been trying to like, 
I'm thinking of it as forward progression, right? Yeah. And, um, and a certain amount of that has been sort of to kind of mentally devalue what Jawbox did. We're, I'm talking now about like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, mm -hmm. I'd kind of be like, oh, I'm writing way better songs now, you know? Right. And I, while I feel like, like I am personally, I've developed or whatever, it was kind of, it's, there's a, something happened along the way to the 2018 reunion, maybe in like 2015 or 2016, where I started thinking about the Jawbox tunes and I was like, you know, I shouldn't be such a jerk about this band. This band was really good. Like, look what we did. Look at, yeah. you know, and we're all still friends. And our friendship is better as adults than it was as 20-somethings. <laughs> right? Yeah. And like the fact that these friendships have survived over time, like we should do a reunion tour because like, wouldn't it be cool to go back to this thing that was kind of... You know, I'm not saying there wasn't anything good about it at the time because there certainly was, but it, it it had it was a lot then, you know. Right, right. And to go back to it and be like, yeah, it's just like uh, putting it in a different frame. Yeah, you're like burning yeah, sage yeah. over. Right. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, right. Yeah, I, exactly. I will say, actually. like, as a as a you know, and, I, and I'm I'm a huge music fan. I like all kinds of music. I make no bones about it. Like I'll, I've been actually listening to some of the like the Grateful Dead like live shows recently because I'm working on another show where they're they're talking about like tour stuff and just the musicianship now is a I, I hear it differently as a you know 50 year old than I did as a 20 year old. Mm -hmm. right. And I think Jawbox is a band for me, and there's no comparison, obviously, musically, but. Um, for me, it's like it's sort of like aged really well. And now when I listen to it now, I hear things that I didn't hear as a 20 year old because my ears are just different now. You know, my my ability to sit through a record and be patient and wait for all the parts to happen is a much different experience. Oh, yeah, that's 50. true. Huh? And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I, I think for me timing wise as a is again as a music fan and a jawbox fan it was really great because i got to go to the shows when you guys did the first stuff the first time around and i think you played with the velvet team at the fillmore who oh, yeah. grew up with yeah, those yeah. guys in santa rosa so I, I know them very well um and but it was so i i got to go with my friend that is it was it is and he, he's he's a fan of all of your stuff all the way back to gi but um he came out from Salt Lake city and we just got to have like a really good night and watch you guys play and not, it was like, it's such a different experience as a 15 or a 50 year old to watch this, you know, band, all of you are so good at your instruments. And it was, it was really nice to be able to appreciate it and have a slowed down life. Like you were saying in my twenties, I was freaking out. You yeah. Know, I agree with no, that. I mean, but I mean, I think like, like there's a, there's a thing about like for the reunion shows, we tuned down a half step. Oh, I did not. Ah. Which, which is, which I started doing, I started doing it at right after Jawbox broke up because there's a lot of stuff that I, you know, in, in developing in the, in the original iteration of the band, you know, trying to figure out what to sing was like a crisis of confidence. And like, I ended up writing things that were either just outside my range or then I'd try and sing low and it was, you know, just, I, I couldn't hit it, so I'd try and sing it low, and it's I was underpowered, and just loads of things I didn't have a grip on. And then, um, 
starting with burning airlines, I started tuning down a half step and I was like, Oh my God, there's my range. I started doing that last year. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. Like suddenly it changes everything. Yeah. Yeah. You have access to things you just didn't have access to. And so I, I was kind of like, if we're going to do this, let's tune down a half step so that I can actually sing these fucking things like a singer who Mm -hmm. wants to convey something Mm -hmm. because they were like that, like livid is the song, a Jawbox song that is it's an abomination in the original version vocally because it's all down in this range that right. just can't be, right. you know and i was like i shouldn't have sung it like that but i couldn't sing it the other way right. and it was amazing that all we had to do is shift it down a half step mm-hmm. and suddenly i can reach that range where i'm like right. hello people without I having to put want, a cable you to listen to me up your whole guitar <laughs> right. or something crazy like <laughs> right that. yeah oh, so i mean just you know that that kind of stuff like degrees. Um, an awareness of Uh-oh. well we got to wrap up anyway oh well yeah jay i don't have a phone number for him either um, am i gone did you lose me everybody this has been a fantastic show <laughs> i know we are having some technical difficulties frozen. and we're gonna have to get jay back on again someday i hope so uh thanks for listening jay if you can hear me it's been great you're frozen oh, buddy. man Kevin, (laughs) have yourself a wonderful day, and we'll see you next week.